If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we want to pick up our study in verse 12. Now, this morning, we want to look at this topic, His Amazing Grace. Now, last week, Paul was speaking about, you know, sound doctrine, how it was so important there at Ephesus. There were those that were coming in, and they were undermining uh, the teachings. And so now Paul gives a little bit of testimony uh, to Timothy. And he shares about how he came uh, to God's amazing grace. And here's this Saul of Tarsus before he becomes Paul the Apostle. He was a tyrant. He was mean. He was vicious. We're going to read here in Acts chapter 9 that testimony of how he came to saving grace. But we often speak of the grace of God. And so I want to just give you a little bit of uh, background. The grace of God, uh, the word grace in the New Testament is charis. And basically, Vine's Dictionary, a Greek word, says that the word grace means accepted. It means benefit. And I like this translation. It means favor. It means to be thankful. And so we look at this word favor. And something that I learned years ago, that it's God's unmerited favor. I deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. This solitarsis, he deserved judgment. But God gives him this grace. It's unmerited favor. And so you run with this grace. And it's the grace of God that sustains us. We see our old English and the King James, the word grace, the word favor, the word thanksgiving, the word pleasure. And it's God's pleasure to give you his grace. It's God's pleasure to sustain you, even though we're all sinners, saved by grace. And we're going to see that this morning. Now, Nelson's uh, Dictionary of Greek Words says this about the word grace. It is favor or kindness shown without regard to the worth or to the merit of the one who receives it in spite of what that person deserves. Again, we deserve judgment. Grace is one of the key attributes of God. The grace of God. That's what you're sitting on this morning, basically, if you've come to saving grace. God's given you his amazing grace. Now, listen to this text in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord God is merciful and gracious. He's long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. That's the grace of God. I deserve judgment. But he gives me his grace. And so Nelson's dictionary goes on. Therefore, grace is almost always associated with mercy, God's love, God's compassion, God's patience, and the source of help and with deliverance from distress. And that distress is the sinful nature. His grace is what saves us from going to hell, basically. And it all comes from the cross as we receive Christ. And so Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, he received this grace. Yet he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Benjamite. He was considered a fighter. He used to boast, on the eighth day I was circumcised. Because it came to the law, Paul was the law. He was considered a doctor of the law. Studied under the greatest teachers. He belonged to the Sanhedrin, the 71 elect, the tribunal that made all the rules, the regulations, and followed them through. And so Paul comes to this saving grace. Now, before we get into our text, leave a marker there and go with me to the book of Acts chapter 9. If you've not come to saving grace yet, you need to find your Damascus highway salvation. Oftentimes people will ask, have you come to saving grace? Well, what do you mean by that? Have you come to the knowledge of a Savior? Have you met Christ at your Damascus highway? And this is Saul of Tarsus. And you're going to see a man here that was obviously very religious, but he did not know Christ. He did not know salvation. He had not tasted of the grace of God. And so he gives testimony here. In Acts chapter 9, let's begin in verse 1. Then Saul, this is Saul of Tarsus, he was not Paul the Apostle yet. Then Saul of Tarsus, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. 
And then it says in verse 2, and he asked them letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way. They wouldn't even call them Christians. They would call those of that way the way of Christ. Whether it be men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so this Saul of Tarsus, that was his job, and he did it diligently. He did it religiously. Now, I want you to look at the word in verse 1. He, he was breathing out threats. The, the, new, the scripture here in the Greek, basically, his breathing out threats, it shows you the anger that he had. The Greek speaks of somebody that's inhaling and exhaling. There's this anger. One of my commentaries said it was like, if you were to see an animal, that their nostrils are flaring in and out just in anger. This was his solitarsis. Letters in hands. He's going to go to Damascus. He's going to bring back Christians. He had already consented in Acts chapter 8 to the stoning of Stephen. But I believe that stoning of Stephen, that he saw this young man die the martyr's death. And it never left solitarsis. It brought such a conviction because the Bible says that he was like an angel. Stephen was like an angel that he come, comes to saving grace. And then he's testifying there in the book of Acts in chapter 8. He's letting the religious leaders know all about God. And how God sent his son, his only begotten son. Now notice in verse 3. And he journeyed and he came near Damascus. This is Solitarsus. But suddenly... A light shone round about him from heaven. And this is the power of God. But Saul of Tarsus doesn't know it yet. In verse 4, then he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why are you persecuting me? Now, this is the power of God again. But this is Christ himself speaking to this Saul of Tarsus. God had a reason and a purpose for this man. Just as he has a reason and a purpose for you, as he has a reason and a purpose for me. And that first reason is to come to saving grace. And then God enables you and he puts you in ministry. Now people shrug to that. I don't want to be a pastor. Ladies, I don't, you know, you say, I don't want to be a pastor's wife. But God calls us, each one of us. There's different callings. And so notice as he's going to recognize that it's the power of God, he hears his voice, verse 5, and then he responds to the voice. Who are you, Lord? How did Saul of Tarsus know to respond? Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And mark this down. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads were a sharp stick that usually were put at the bottom about the, the height where the oxen would step back. And these sharp pointed sticks, they were called goads, it, it would hit them in the leg. And then they could only back up so far. Then they realized, I'm getting hit in the leg, i got to go forward. But that goad is the Holy Spirit in my life and in your life. As the Holy Spirit pricks our hearts. As the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts. As the Holy Spirit says, listen, Bob, you need to come to saving grace. Listen, Saul of Tarsus, you need to come to saving grace. He doesn't know it. But he responds, is that you, Lord? He hears this voice. And I want you to think here this morning. If you've not come to saving grace, then the Holy Spirit is still convicting you. But go back to your B.C. days before Christ as the Holy Spirit spoke to you. As the Holy Spirit said, hey, you need to get saved. This is what Saul of Tarsus is giving such a beautiful testimony. He goes into verse 6. So he, speaking of Saul of Tarsus, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, I want you to think of Saul of Tarsus. He's already gone uh, to the leaders in the religious sect, and he's got letters in hand. He's going to Damascus for one reason and one purpose, bring back Christians. But now something's happened on this road to Damascus. He, he hears, uh, you know, voices, and he sees this light, and he's knocked off of, uh, onto the ground. But he recognizes the power of God. And this Saul of Tarsus, 
Like a raging bull, his nostrils flaring in and out. Look at verse 7 now. And the men who journeyed with him, they stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Only this Saul of Tarsus knows what's going on. God is touching his heart. In verse 8, then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. He's blind now. This man that was such a threat. This man that was inhaling and exhaling and just the, the flaring up of his nostrils, anger. Now he's like a little puppy dog led by the hand, taken to Damascus. In verse 9, and he was there for three days without sight, and neither did he eat nor drink anything. What happened in those three days? He's definitely trusting God. He's leaning upon God. Somebody has to take him by the hand. I mean, we've never experienced blindness. Maybe somebody has. My dad uh, in World War II was buried alive. He was blind for six months. It's not an easy task. People walk in, who's there? Nobody says nothing. And so imagine now, he's trusting God. The Holy Spirit is speaking to him. He's hearing, why do you kick against the goats? This is me, it's Jesus. I'm speaking to you. I mean, what a time of conversion here. And so Paul, this Saul of Tarsus, tasted of God's amazing grace. And this morning, before we even get into our text, if you've not come to salvation, you've not tasted of the amazing grace of God. I deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. This Saul of Tarsus, he deserved judgment. Timothy, he's writing the letter to him. Uh, we're going to read about Titus later. And all of these deserve judgment. But God gives them his grace, unmerited favor. And so we begin here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse 12 with me. And Paul begins to give his testimony just a short time. Now, on your own, he gives his testimony several times. We just read in Acts chapter 9. He's experiencing what he already understood concerning Stephen's death back in Acts chapter 8. Amazing grace. Look at verse 12 now. And Paul begins here to Timothy, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me. He says, Because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now this morning you might respond, Well, I don't want to be in the ministry. And you can't be in the ministry unless God calls you. But listen, you have ministry at home. You have ministry at school. You have ministry at work. If you're a Christian, moms and dads, you have ministry with your family. God calls each and every one of us, maybe never to the pulpit, but God calls us to be a witness and a testimony of his love. We might be the most insignificant thing uh, in the ministry. Maybe God calls you to pass out the bulletins. Maybe God calls you to watch the children. Maybe God calls you to, you know, go up on the roof. We've been having leaks on the roof. Maybe just God calls you to prayer. When we take up the offering at the end of the service, God calls you to give. And if you don't have the money, you present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. But God calls each one of us. Notice verse 12 now. When the Lord calls you, number one, he calls you to saving grace. And then secondly, he calls you into his work. Each one of us are called into his work. Here, Saul of Tarsus gives testimony, or Paul the Apostle now, testimony of his own personal calling. We just read in Acts chapter 9, this is where he comes to saving grace, that highway at Damascus. Paul's thanking the Lord for his call into ministry. And notice the word, he enabled Paul. The Greek word here comes from the same Greek word that we use for the empowering, uh, the word dunamis. God enables us. You see, I can't do it. You can't do it. Saul of Tarsus couldn't do it. We need the power of God. We need the power of his Holy Spirit. Uh, the word here comes from the word dunamis. He empowers me. He enables me. He enables you. He empowered this Paul the Apostle. God gives us the power of his Holy Spirit to do the work of the ministry. 
And again, not just, you know, not everybody can be the pastor. Not everybody can give a Bible study, but God calls you. Tomorrow you'll be at your workplace. God enables you. Tomorrow you might go to the gym. God enables you. He empowers you. You might be able to witness to somebody. Maybe this afternoon you're going to have dinner with some of your family, friends, loved ones, and they don't know Christ. God enables you. He empowers you. You're able to share God's love. It's a beautiful testimony that Paul is speaking about here. Paul was enabled. Then Paul says, because he counted me faithful. Listen to this. He placed into my personal account faithfulness. The word faithfulness, he placed into my heart belief. He placed into my heart trust. And this trust that Paul was given is to have belief, to have trust in Christ. Is that you, Lord, he said. Then he uh, also puts into the ministry. This is God's service. Each one of us come to saving grace. Then he places this call upon our very hearts. Now, there's a beautiful passage of Scripture, and we're not going to have time to go to it this morning, but I want you to write it down. I'm going to just bring it to your remembrance. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31. Paul is speaking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul uses the anatomy. He uses man's body. And he uses it as a description. You see, we have two ears, we have two eyes, we have a nose. But imagine if your body said, well, I just want to be a nose, that's it. It's not going to work. There's different functions, you know, in the anatomy. There's different functions in the body of Christ. And so Paul speaks about uh, this gift of calling. And, And some of us, he uses the anatomy, are called to be a foot, to be a hand, to be an ear, to be a, a, an eye or a nose. But we're all one body. So the body of Christ. Well, you know, I just set up the coffee on Sunday mornings. Praise the Lord. Well, you know, I just hand out a bulletin, you know, maybe uh, twice a, a, a month. Well, you know, I go back and work with, praise God. Whatever God calls you, he enables you. He strengthens you. And this is Saul of Tarsus. Now he becomes Paul the Apostle. Let's continue in our text. Look at verse 13 now. And Paul's going to give just a slight testimony of the type of person, the type of man he was. Although I was formerly, he's speaking about his B.C. days, before Christ, when I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it, and I felt trapped to this, and so did you. The things that we did, I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. But it's when we come to saving grace that God holds us accountable And so here, in verse 13, Paul's testimony, and he often shared his testimony. He says, I, as Saul of Tarsus, was formerly in our B.C. days a blasphemer. The Greek says there that he was evil towards God and evil towards man. He says also, before, in my B.C. days, I was a persecutor of the church. And the word to persecute the church, to pursue them uh, to the end. That's exactly what he did in Acts chapter 8 concerning Stephen's death. And he was going on to Damascus to do the exact same thing. Then he goes, I was also an insolent man. The word insolent here speaks of something despiteful, an insulter. But I like this translation, Vine's Dictionary says, an injurious man. One that causes injury. One that causes pain. Paul did this ignorantly. (laughs) But look at this portion now. And I love this. And I have to say, praise God to this. And then Paul says, but I obtained mercy. I obtained mercy. You obtained mercy. I received the word mercy. I received compassion. I I received mercy. I I received grace. That's that unmerited favor. Because when I did these sins, I did them ignorantly, Paul says. And I did it in unbelief. Unknowingly, without faith. Yet Saul of Tarsus was a very religious man. He was considered a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was considered a doctor of the law. He belonged to the Sanhedrin, many scholars believe. 
He was part of the 71 elect there of the high tribunal of the consul of Israel. This high tribunal, they passed all the laws and then they persecuted those laws upon you. The tribunal, the 70 elect, were the cause of Christ's death. They crucified him. Yet we know that Jesus went willingly to the cross. Now remember last week in our study, Paul spoke about, you know, where he was. We spoke about religion. This was Saul of Tarsus. Very religious. Some of us were very religious. Now, religion cannot save you. Religion is man-made. Religion is man trying to please God by works. By trying to please God by programs. By trying to please God with gimmicks. Lord, if I do this, you'll do this for me. If I do this a little bit more, then you're going to save me. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. You see, the Jews were notorious. I'm going to go do my rituals, my rites, my customs, my traditions. Here in our beautiful uh, Messiah Valley, well, come December the 12th, I, as long as I, you know, march up to A Mountain from Tortugas, God's going to honor me and take me into the kingdom of God. No, you just did a beautiful walk. You just did a beautiful walk, and praise God you did it, but that doesn't save you. And so many times we think, you know, if I do this for God, he has to do this for me. If you come to Christ as a broken man or a broken woman, and you say, Lord, forgive me, this is what Saul of Tarsus did. And you recognize the, the work on the cross. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father but through me. And so imagine this Saul of Tarsus now. You mean the law's not going to do it? You mean the rituals, the rites, the customs, not going to do it? You mean I belong to the Sanhedrin and I'm part of the 70 elect, 71 elect, and that's not going to do it? No, Saul. You have to come to saving grace. And that's why Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was persecuting the church, thinking that's going to get him into the kingdom of God. He did it ignorantly. Remember the years we did it ignorantly, thinking I'm saved because of my good works, thinking I'm saved because I was baptized as a child, thinking I'm saved because I did. You didn't do nothing. Jesus did it all. And once we recognize that, the psalmist says, taste of the Lord, for he is good. Look at verse 14 now. We continue. And he's continuing this amazing grace. He says in verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul recognized this now. He says here in verse 14, Yet though it all, through it all that is, the grace of our Lord was superabounding. That's the translation. With faith now. In other words, belief and trust in Christ. And it works through his agape love or by his love, this divine love that comes from and through his love on the cross when I truly ask Jesus to forgive me and to come into my life. Listen to the Greek translation here. He filled me completely, not just partially. He filled me completely with his faith and his love. This is what he places in our hearts. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it superabounds now in Paul's life, in Titus's life, in young Timothy's life, but our lives this morning, if we've come to saving grace. And then it says here, it's manifested. It shows itself in a way of extraordinary mercy and grace. How does this happen? But by God's faith. And God's love that he places into our hearts. Not only pardoning uh, such sins and offenses, but leading Paul now to the full experience and knowledge of Christ and his church. This is God's faith and love in you, in me, as it was also in Solitarsus. And we know that Solitarsus was vicious, was mean, was an insolent man. And now he comes to saving grace. Now, Paul really experienced this, and he often wrote of it. Turn with me now. Uh, leave a marker there. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. 
You see, the grace of God, I really don't understand it fully. But I know that God has given me his grace. Oh, I deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. Uh, Solitarsis deserve judgment. But God gives us his grace. Remember the word unmerited favor. I deserve the judgment. We all do. And so Paul here speaks about it in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Jesus Christ took our place. And he died on the cross. And he did this by choice. Basically, he said, I'm going to die for Bob. I'm going to die for this solitarsis. I'm going to die for you. Put your name in there. That's the love that God did for me, for you. Romans 5, look at verse 6. He says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That was you. That was me. This was solitarsis. And then he goes into verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. This is exactly what Christ did. Now watch this. We fit in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Mark it. While we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. He died for Paul. He died for you. You see, church, here in verse 8, this is the grace of God. I deserve judgment, but he gives me his grace. Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his precious blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? His grace, now listen, enables me to be freed from hell. I was hell bound. You were hell bound. But through his grace, he has set me free. In verse 10, for it, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him uh, through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, basically. How much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Listen to the word reconciliation. He brings it back into verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The best translation there is we have received his atonement, his atoning blood, his precious blood. I want you to see the picture of the first Passover. Back in Exodus chapter 12, death is coming into the camp. And remember, Moses is instructed, and he takes the hyssop, and he dips it into the blood of the lamb, and he puts it onto the doorpost. When we come to saving grace, when we accept that sacrifice of Christ on the cross, that blood is placed upon us. That blood that assures us salvation. That blood that enables me to come into the kingdom of God. That blood that bestows the grace of God upon me. I'm reconciled, covered in the blood of the Lamb. It's just a beautiful text. Now, let's go back to our First Timothy, chapter 15, now, or verse 15, that is, chapter 1. Listen to Paul's heart here now. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, we know that, right? Praise God. But listen to this. Here's Paul's heart. He says, of whom I am the chief sinner. Wait a minute, Paul. Now that I've come to saving grace, and now that I know through these years, I tell Paul, move over, because I'm the chief sinner. And then basically, you've come to saving grace, and you tell Paul, and you tell Pastor Bob, no, 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 you move over. I am the chief sinner. You see, we come to that place now. I am but dust. (laughs) I need a Savior. I need God's love, grace, His mercy. I need this saving grace. And I see my life and I go, Lord, (laughs) I am the chief sinner. Paul, here's Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a doctor of the law. I mean, credentials all over the wall. He boasted on the eighth day, I was circumcised. When it comes to the law, I knew it. 
But now Paul comes to grips. I am the chief sinner. I am number one. This parallels back to verse 13, where he says, I was formerly in my B.C. days a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. When we come to saving grace, each one of us, no matter what sins I did, past, present, and future, like Paul the Apostle, Lord, I'm the chief sinner. You see, the world can't handle that. When somebody is on death row in, a, in, in the penitentiary, maybe they're a serial killer. And they're in the penitentiary, uh, the chaplain visits. They're in the penitentiary penitentiary they come to saving grace the world can't handle that wait a minute i've never murdered anybody i've never been a serial killer and you say that person's going to heaven if they truly repented they truly accepted christ and i've heard statements like this well if they're going to be in heaven i don't want to go there you see that's the power of god you see i, I might have just been a liar I might have just been a small thief. I might have just been a drunkard. The Bible says no liar, no drunkard, or enter the kingdom of God. But I look at somebody else. Oh, a fornicator, an adulterer, a homosexual, a lesbian. Oh, a murderer, a death row murderer. God can forgive them as he forgave us. <laughs> While we were yet sinners, he died for us. I asked Ray if he would do Amazing Grace because we're teaching on his Amazing Grace. And I love that stanza of the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Years ago, maybe some of you recall this years ago, Phil Donahue was having his talk show. And he had a bunch of Christians on the talk show. And they were having, you know, some dialogue back and forth. And usually the media is the media. And, you know, Phil Donahue was trying to nail them down. And he says, well, you know that song you guys all sing, Amazing Grace? You know it? And they said, well, sure we know it. Well, would you just start it and then I'll stop you? And they start the stanza, Amazing Grace, how, how sweet the sound. That saved the wretch like me. And he says, stop. See, I don't like that part. What do you mean he saved the wretch like me? I'm not that bad. You remember when you said that? I do. I'm not that bad. I mean, I drink a little bit, smoke a little pot, sell a little pot. Come on, I'm not hurting nobody. We're all sinners needing salvation by grace. And Paul could say, who saved the wretch like me. This is why he said, I'm the chief sinner. Hey, you're looking at him right here, Paul said. But imagine through the years, all these chief sinners that have come to saving grace. Some of you were probably worse than Saul of Tarsus. And yet God saves us, miraculously saves us. Look at verse 16. Let's continue in our text. However, listen to Paul's heart now. However, for this reason, you know, I was an insolent man. I was all these things. I was a persecutor. For this reason, I obtained mercy that in me... First, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him. And I like this. We believe on Christ, listen, for everlasting life. It's not just for Sunday morning. It's not just because right now I'm going through a tremendous trial. But we're talking about everlasting life. We're talking about eternity and nobody can describe eternity. I, I have a good idea of 50 years, of 60 years, because I've experienced that. And some people have an idea of 70 years and 80 years because they experience that. My grandparents all had the idea, and they experienced the 90s. But they eventually all died. You see Willard Scott, and he's always, you know, on TV, he goes, happy birthday to Sharon out there in Alabama. She's 125. What? Well, she's experiencing that. Well, what's eternity? What's eternity? There's no number. There's no number. It's everlasting life. So Paul here in verse 16, this is why God had mercy and grace on me, so that Christ Jesus could use me. 
this is Paul's example, could use me as a prime, prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinner. He said he was the chief sinner. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Now I want you to put on your thinking caps. Who gave you the impression in your heart, in your life, man, I want what they have. I want what she has. I call myself a Christian, but look what she has. Look what he has. That's what I want. You see, Paul became a testimony to people like Timothy, people like Titus, Barnabas. Remember Philemon and Onesimus? Paul became a, a, a testimony to them. Now, I'm going to take you back 30 years ago. Right before I come to Saving Grace, I'm, I'm searching the scriptures. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm hearing testimony of this, testimony of that. And I got hooked into a little book called The Cross and the Switchblade. It was the story of Nicky Cruz. Nicky Cruz was a gang member. He was in charge of the Mau Maus there in New York. And I go, wow, this dude was bad. And God saved him. God saved him. And then I started hearing at work about this guy, Raul Reese, there at Calvary Chapel, West Covina. And that was my pastor eventually. But at first I was here. Man, he was going to kill his wife. He was going to kill his kids. He was going to kill everybody. They took him out of Vietnam because he was killing too many people. I said, wait a minute. I thought that's what war is about. He basically was going nuts. And they said, God saved him. I go, what's going on? I don't understand that. And back in Los Angeles, I used to put on a program, and I loved it. There was a, a, an old gang member by the name of uh, Sonny Argonzoni, and he started the Victory Outreaches. Sonny Argonzoni and his wife, man, they were drug addicts, and they came to Saving Grace. And these are the people that I saw their testimonies. I read their testimonies, and I said, God, if you could change them, you could change me. And there in my workplace, God brought this young man named Steve, a good kid, and he had everything going for him. He had, the, he had the grades. He had good head on his shoulders. And he was basically going to get a scholarship. He was a good ball player. But he liked drugs. And he passed out on campus. And everybody thought, oh, he's been working too hard. And, and they took him to the hospital. He OD'd. And they had to revive him. He lost everything, scholarships and all. But that's what brought him to saving grace. And when Steve came to our workplace, I had the opportunity to see this young man's life. And I remember saying, I want what he has. The testimony of somebody having this true, amazing grace in their life. And I'll tell you what, I used to badger Steve. And he would still come back and share God's love with me. This was Paul the Apostle. Now, remember we shared in Acts chapter 9? Paul was going to Damascus, letters in hand. When he gets there, God puts this man called Ananias, take care of him. While he was blinded, Paul was, Saul of Tarsus was. Then he tells him, care for him and take off the scales. I want you to put yourself in Ananias' shoes. Lord, I'm going to take the scales off his eyes. I'm going to clean his eyes. And the first one he's going to see is me. He's going to take me back to Jerusalem. And Ananias had to trust the Lord. But what happened to Saul of Tarsus in three days? The power of God's Holy Spirit was speaking to him. Now let's go to verse 17. Now to the king eternal. Listen to Paul's logic here. The Holy Spirit speaking to him. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so this solitarsis now, Paul the Apostle has experienced God's amazing grace. And he gives all glory and honor to God forever and ever. And he describes God. He is the eternal king, an unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Paul gives strong testimony. Remember, he was formerly a religious man, a Pharisee. Part of the 70 elect, but now he's saved by grace. I want to go to another passage. Go to 1 Corinthians with me. And go to chapter 1, verse 26. And again, Paul could not do this enough. 
And that was to give God the glory. I'll tell you, after 26 years of ministry, I, I still marvel that God would even use me. That God has enabled me uh, to be a teacher of his word. That God has enabled you all these years to be saved, sanctified, set apart. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And he goes into it. But God has chosen, underline that. He called himself the chief sinner. Now he says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. If you've never had the opportunity, uh, Calvary Chapel has a book called The Harvest. And in that book, The Harvest, it shows these guys like Greg Laurie and, and Pastor Rawl, Pastor Skip, how, how God used these low lives and how he saved them. And then he puts them on the pulpit. And then so many that have come to saving grace through, through these men. They were called the motley crew. And he goes on, not just only the foolish things. Look at verse 28. And the base things. That's the lowest of the lowest. The base things of the world and, and the things which are despised. God has chosen, and the things which are not bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You imagine when Paul the Apostle stood before the Lord in heaven eventually? No way did he say, hey, I'm the Saul of Tarsus. I was a Pharisee of Pharisee. No, man, he was there just to worship the Lord. He concludes in verse 30 and 31, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, notice, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. The word righteous, we were not righteous, but he made us righteous. I'm now right living with God because I've accepted his son. And then he sanctifies us. He sets us apart. And look at the word redemption. We talked about reconciliation, atonement. But here, redemption, that he paid the full price for me. He paid the full price for me, for you, for Timothy, for Titus, for Barnabas. The list goes on. He paid the full price for us at the cross. He concludes in verse 31 that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Paul couldn't do anything else after coming to saving grace and the knowledge of a Savior. Lord, it was you. Lord, it was you. Thank you. I deserve judgment, but you've given me grace. Now we're going to come to the conclusion. Look at verse 18 now. He's been giving his testimony. Let's go back to 1 Timothy. And now he encourages Timothy. Remember, he's writing to him. It's called a pastoral epistle. He's encouraging him. He says in verse 18, This charge I commit to you. And he calls him a son. To you, son Timothy, according uh, to the prophecies previously made concerning you. And he says that by them you may wage the good warfare. Listen to the translations here. This charge, this command, this mandate, I commit, I entrust to you my spiritual son, Timothy. Remember the word Timotheus we studied last week? It meant venerated of God. But he called them his spiritual son. Paul never had children. There's no record of Paul having children. And so here uh, he, he says, uh, Timothy, my son, according to the previous prophecies. The word prophecies are predictions here. From God concerning Timothy's call into the ministry. Vine's Dictionary, a Greek word, says that the word prophecies are prophesia uh, in the Greek, the speaking forth of the mind and the counsel of God. Timothy, God has spoken of you and your call to ministry. Now wage or serve, execute, contend the good warfare. Now listen to the word good warfare. Basically, an honest career. 
Timothy, you've been called into the ministry. Let it be an honest call. Oh, there's so much dishonesty in the pulpit today. Let it be an honest call. Serve God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. I was taught years ago in shepherd school, as you come into ministry, always give God your best and then commit the rest to him. Just give God your best. You know, we're not all super saints. Get that out of your head. I want to be like Chuck Smith. No, be who you are. Well, I want to be like Sonny Argonzoni. You just, no, be who you are. Each individual has their own testimony. I thank the Lord the things he's done in and through me. I thank the Lord for you. You should thank the Lord the things he's done in your life as I learn of him because of his amazing grace. Now notice verse 19. Verse 19 and 20. Remember, Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy's pastoring a church. He's a young pastor. There's a tax in the ministry. There's undermining in the ministry. Paul is going to call out two guys here. Oh, you shouldn't be calling names out. Hey, Paul did it. They were undermining the teachings. And listen to the harsh words that Paul says. Having faith in verse 19 and a good conscience, which some having rejected these two guys here, concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Basically, these two become apostates. Look at verse 19. He says, hold on to your beliefs. Hold on to your trust. Your belief, your trust in God. And a good conscience speaks of Timothy's good character that was made, that was inside him from God. There were those at Ephesus who rejected Timothy's call to ministry. These in their unbelief, their faithlessness, have suffered. Listen to the word shipwreck. They have left themselves stranded because of their lack of faith. They have stranded their faith, their belief, their trust in the Lord. They have become apostates. The great falling away from the faith. Then he names them. Look at verse 20. Of whom are Hymenius and Alexander. Now, I've had people come against me. And I've got to be honest with you. I have never said, Lord, I hand them over to Satan. This is the things that Paul did. Lord, I break them. Lord, speak to them. Lord, save them. Lord, show them the error of their way. But I don't have the gumption to say what Paul says. Of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Wow. There's a couple of prayers that King David prays in the Old Testament. Lord, break their teeth. Lord, break their cheekbones. I go, well, that's not bad, but I don't want to hand somebody over to Satan. It's exactly what Paul said here. Paul names them. These I delivered, I handed over to Satan, to Lucifer, to the devil himself, to that old dragon, that they learn not to blaspheme, defame, Speak evil against God. Speak evil against man. They hated Paul. They hated Timothy. Now it's interesting because he speaks about these men. There's another one in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. Philetus. These have caused me great harm. Now put on your thinking cap. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. This is always amazing to me. There was a brother in the church that was having a sexual relationship with his stepmom. And Paul says, I hand him over to Satan. Now, when I read that passage, I go, well, he deserves it. But Paul called him a brother. Interesting. Now, if there was a carnal church, it was the church of Corinth. They were very carnal, very fleshly. But that also speaks of, listen, the grace of God. Since I've come to saving grace, since you've come to saving grace, how many times have I blown it? How many times have you blown it? And, and you're convinced God's not going to forgive me. But God's still there to forgive you. There is no more condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Don't let the enemy condemn you. And here's your worst enemy. Don't condemn yourself. You make a mistake, you err, you sin, 
come back to the cross. Hymenius and Alexander, they apostates. They went away from the cross. And I tell you what, don't run from God, run to God. That's the key. Experience again his amazing grace. Later on, we're going to read that Paul says, Timothy, I need to stir up the gift that's within you. There's a calling in each one of us. Sometimes it needs to be stirred up. Or maybe you have not come to saving grace. You need to experience that. I can't do it for you. You have to do it yourself. Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Come into my life. It's a simple deal. Let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love, and your mercy. Lord, Paul experienced the amazing grace of God. Unmerited favor. He deserved judgment as each one of us do. But you gave Paul grace. You've given us grace. Lord, maybe there's somebody here this morning that is still kicking against the goads. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that still has not made that commitment to Christ. The Bible says that today is the day of your salvation. With every eye closed and every head bowed, I'm going to give you that opportunity. I'm not going to ask you to come up, but right there where you're at, if you'd like to say the sinner's prayer, it's a simple prayer. It's you acknowledging to God, I need a Savior. If you've not come to saving grace, if that's you this morning, would you acknowledge by putting up your hand, and I'll say a simple prayer with you. Anybody here this morning, before we close, you'd like to accept Christ. Anybody. Praise the Lord, then, if we've all come to saving grace, let's pray for God's grace that it would just continue. Father, I thank you for these, your servants. I thank you for these that have uh, called upon you in time past. Lord, we all struggle. But, Lord, I thank you for your saving grace upon us. I thank you, Lord, that uh, you've enabled us to come uh, into ministry, to come into the call of God. Maybe I'm just going to be a witness for one person as Philip was to the Ethiopian. Lord, bless your people as they've come this morning. Minister to all of our hearts this morning. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. Lord, bless the offerings now. As you've given to us, we give back a portion. Lord, bless your people. Hear our prayers that we prayed for this morning for the Lori family and also, Lord, for Frank and his family. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and we all agree by saying amen.